Good morning, Ports Church. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to be with you today for the Lamenting Division Part 2. Um, I was glad to have you guys join us last week. Uh, and just want to, again, speak a word of encouragement to all of you guys. Um, it has been crazy to, to launch a church uh, in the midst of the pandemic, but, but it was clearly God's timing. Uh, and God has been with you, and God continues to be with you. And, and I look forward to seeing uh, all that God's going to do uh, in the coming year as everything gets lifted with the pandemic coming more under control and the vaccinations getting out. And I just think that God has you guys positioned to love and serve the city, to see people come to faith and just to grow in all kinds of ways as a church. So just grateful for you. And once you guys know that, well, I'm going to read um, some scriptures here that there won't be the primary scriptures we're going to dive into. Uh, there's a principle in scripture and I'm sure you guys know, it's just, we let scripture interpret or we interpret scripture in light of scripture. So we don't pull any verses out of context. We, we, we desire to interpret it all in light of other passages. Um, and so in that way, these passages are really the backdrop for the main verses we're going to look at today. We're going to be in Colossians 5 or Colossians 3 verses 5 to 11. Um, but this backdrop of, of a view of humanity, um, I wanted us to see because this is really what is the Holy Spirit's using to inform the other apostles, the Apostle Paul and the rest. Um, so listen to these verses uh, and I'm going to read to you. Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Ecclesiastes 8.14. There is a futility that is done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say that this too is futile. So you have this, this picture right away of God creating humanity in his image to have this dignity and worth and glory and honor. And the book of Ecclesiastes gives us the experience um, of the author there. We're talking about everything's gone awry, that, that it's not uh, playing out as you would expect it to, given the beginning of the story, because of sin and brokenness. Proverbs seventeen fifteen, acquitting the guilty and condemning the just. Both are detestable to the Lord. Isaiah 10, 1 to 2. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. So you have this, this image of, of not only has something gone badly, but God's in the midst. God calls himself the father of the fatherless. Uh, he is the protector of the widow and the orphan. God is in the midst to put things right. Humanity was created to live in harmony and in relationship with God, and in harmony in relationship with each other. And yet all kinds of injustice and things interfere with that. But all throughout scripture, there's this teaching, this framework that we are to look at humanity differently. Here's Luke in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm just going to read you the opening uh, few verses here of what Jesus is trying to teach this man. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, to test Jesus, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So there's this impulse where we are, we know somewhere deep down we are created uh, to love all humanity. That, that Again, brokenness and sin enter in, and all kinds of complications uh, and atrocities end up marring that. But deep down, we know we're supposed to love. And there's this overarching command that Jesus has of love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is going to go on to teach him the parable of Good Samaritan, ultimately to show him when he's asking, who is my neighbor? It's anyone in need that God puts along your path. There's this, there's this common humanity that's in there. And then the book of Revelations gives us a number of images. Here's one of this humanity altogether. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And there were, and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your word and it can speak to us about who you are and who we are and how we are called to live in this world. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us the ability to come together this morning to look into your word, to look into these scriptures, to look into Colossians 3 and to ask a question before you. How how do we love you and serve you, God? And how do we love and serve our neighbor? And who is our neighbor? How do we look at all of humanity in this time and in this place? I pray that you would help us to love you and to serve you. I pray that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, and that you would be with us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we see a background in those verses uh, that we just read through, uh, we see this view of, of all humanity we're supposed to have, that God created humanity um, to, to live in harmony with him and in harmony with others, that God created humanity with an inherent dignity and worth and honor due every single human being. But that, that oppression and brokenness and sin of all kinds comes in and, and mars that, inhibits it, damages it, destroys it. And so all of world history, obviously, rather than being a story of, of great harmony and, and peace with God and peace with others, is a story of wars and calamities and disasters and all kinds of pandemics and things that, that are just part of a broken world that we live in. But I think in particular, what's, what this last year of the pandemic has shown us is that where we would have thought that we were somewhat of a polarized society uh, in America going into the pandemic, it highlighted so many of those polarities, so many of those divisions that are in our society. And, and I think the, the, to the extent that we can come to think that a divided humanity is the natural state of humanity. And we see very clearly in scripture, that's just nothing could be farther from the case. It's the natural state of a sinful and broken humanity, but it's not the natural state of how God created humanity. God created us again for harmony and love. God created us to look at other human beings and ascribe to them, attribute to them uh, an inherent dignity and worth and honor and love. And when these things were thrown out of whack, We see God coming in over and over again uh, throughout the prophets in the Old Testament in particular to to, to bring words of judgment upon them. No, oppression's not okay. No, uh, uh, abusing those that are vulnerable is not okay. No, you are to use your power and your privilege to love and to serve. You are to, to, to strive after loving God and strive after loving neighbor. And so when we talk about in this part two of lamenting division today, What I want us to lament is this, we'll talk a bit about the divided state of affairs, about about where division comes from, but I also want us to, I want us to get to a place where we don't look at division as as natural. We look at division as the fruit of sin and brokenness, and we look at the the natural state in terms of like, not natural in the sense of post-fall, but the natural pre-fall, the natural state of how God created humanity was one of peace and harmony and dignity. It was not one of division and, and ugliness that we see today. So why are we divided? 
Are we divided just because we don't agree on on politics? Are we divided just because we don't agree on on morality? Are we divided just because we're so different? Um, if you come from a certain socioeconomic class or different ethnic background, is it inevitable that you would be divided because of the differences that, that are there? Are you dividing? Are we dividing because we think that others are wrong and we're right? Are we dividing because we convince ourselves that others' perspectives are actually so dangerous that they must be condemned? We must distance ourselves. Are, are we divided because others genuinely are bad and we're good? Are, are, are we divided um, because of fill in the blank? Why do you think that we're divided? And there's so many different reasons. And what I want us to do is be honest about those, to search our own hearts and to say, why do I divide from other human beings? Why do I consider it okay sometimes to dehumanize or to divide? And I'm not saying, again, that we don't have deeply held convictions. I'm not saying that there isn't cause for speaking out against other positions that other people have. I'm not saying that you don't hold to things that you believe are honoring to God and, and, and are an act of, of loving your neighbor. And in the course of doing that, maybe opposition comes your way for doing what's right and doing what's good. That's all in the mix. But I want us to get it all out on the table today and ask us, if we look at this lens on humanity that scripture gives us, that, that all are created in God's image, entitled to dignity and worth and honor and love, created in the image of God to, 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 to reflect his glory, his worth, his dignity, his honor into this world. What does that teach us about humanity? Well, it teaches us that every human being is entitled to inherent dignity, worth, honor. And so if we're, gonna, if we're, if we're going to see division in the world, we have to see division as a state of brokenness. Division as a state that, that needs healing. And ultimately, Jesus Christ is the only one that can provide that, he, provide that healing. He is described as reconciling the world to himself through his sacrifice, through his blood. He laid his life down to take all this brokenness and ugliness upon himself to restore humanity to a state of dignity and worth and honor and glory that God intended us to have. But in this time in between the times, as you look at the state that God uh, intended for humanity and the work that Christ has done and is doing, and we look forward to a future state like we see in the book of Revelations where every tribe, tongue, and nation are together once again, what do we do right now? Well, we see indications in the New Testament, I think, of how we're supposed to, to, to think about these things. Uh, the Apostle Paul over and over again is trying to teach about the, this inherent unity that, that Christ is restoring. He talks about in Ephesians how Christ is taking down every wall of hostility um, that's there. He talks about in the book of Colossians that we're going to look at today that there's no Scythian, barbarian, slave, free, circumcised, uncircumcised. Basically what he's saying, and we'll look at those in more detail, is all these reasons that humanity has for prejudice, all these reasons that humanity has um, to divide and to be ugly towards each other uh, all have no place if we're viewing humanity through the lens of Jesus Christ, that these things cannot and should not divide us. Paul is pointing us to a deeper, truer nature of humanity, and we have to see that through the lens of Jesus. But what we also then have to do if we're really going to get to this place of seeing humanity as it was intended to be, seeing humanity as it's played out through history and through our own lives. And as you get in this project of unveiling the truth of our history and unveiling the truth of our own perspectives, we can lament the, the division that we see in front of us. But I also believe that what God wants for us is, is that as we are going through a process of lamenting and seeing reality and deciding who God is and who we are, my prayer is that we would be transformed through that lament. Our theme for this whole series has been lasting hope requires lament. 
And so if I'm to have lasting hope for humanity, if you're to have lasting hope for humanity, if I'm to have any hope that, that the current ugliness and divisiveness can someday be healed or no longer end, then I have to go through lament first. I have to face the ugly reality of what it really is, process through that, understand who God's called me to be, understanding who God's called you to be in the midst of it all. So we're going to today in part one, we're going to lament division. Uh, and then in part two, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be transformed through lament. So starting here, lament division. All division uh, in, in all ugliness, it really begins with interpersonal interactions. How I as a human being or you as a human being decide to treat another human being. And if you take the accumulative impact of all of that, what you get is some of the good we see in the world today, but you get the you get the ugliness we see in the world today. It really is about how one human being decides another human being is worth or not worth their time, their worth, their honor, their attention, their de- all that stuff. It, it's about one human being deciding that they can dehumanize or mistreat another human being for all kinds of reasons, be they they racial, be they socioeconomic, um, uh, be they political, whatever they are. It's whatever it, it, things that we are inventing. That, that we're bringing in front of us that enable us to treat somebody else badly. Every ill in human history comes back to this. Every ill in human history comes back to the collective impact of how one human being decides to treat another human being or one group of human beings decides to treat another group of human beings. And so when we read passages like Colossians, and I'm going to read to you here in a minute, I think the temptation can be to look at Colossians and to think about just the impact of Colossians and these verses on our own lives. And, and that's very real impact there. Right? We have to consider our own lives and how we're treating other people. But we also then have to see that what's described to us here in Colossians helps us understand the world as it is now, the division in our culture as it is now, and maybe how, to, how do we lament it and then, and then process forward. So when we read passages like Colossians 3, 5 to 11, we need to see them as broadly reaching and not just about a simplistic morality or just trying to be nice. This goes to the core of what it means to be a human being, and it goes to the core of what it means to be a redeemed image bearer, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Passages like Colossians, and I could, I could pull up tons of them all over in the New Testament in particular, passages like this give us a different lens on humanity. They help us understand what is destructive to human beings and ourselves included, and they help us understand what is, what is life-giving and what's restorative. So listen to these words and think about it, not just with perspective to your own life, but with what it teaches us about our culture and the history of the world and all those things in between. Here it is. Colossians 3, 5 to 11. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following. Uh, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge according uh, to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, there's all these verses that are there, but what the Apostle Paul is pointing us to is things that are destructive to humanity. 
uh, a scholar NT Wright talks about these are all things that we, if we looked at them rightly, they would be like intruders in our house in the middle of the night. And, and it would be like waking up and seeing that someone's robbing you in the middle of the night, like the thief coming to rob and to steal that Jesus talks about. You know, you hear those noises, you come out and they are ransacking your place and you're startled and you know it's destructive and you know they're taking your most valuable property and destroying your home. But you, in effect, say, oh, it's just thieves. No big deal. Take your time. Stay as long as you want. And you head back to bed. No, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't head back to bed because things are being destroyed. Things you value are being affected in a negative way. And so that's what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand about these things that are in this list. I'm going to go through this list in a little bit. These are things which are destructive to your personal humanity. And these are things which are destructive to the humanity of others. These are things which we we should look at as as things that need to be bound and put away, things that we need to be protected from. Even simply like this in the end, where it says this word greed, that we're, we're to put to death greed, which is idolatry. What does that mean? Why is greed idolatry? Well, greed in this instance means valuing a thing more than a person. We used to do this uh, partly because it was um, instructive, but partly because it was just fun to mess with my kids when they were younger and they'd be fighting over, you know, in essence, what were just plastic toys, right? We would bring them together and I would ask them again, because I'm mean sometimes as a dad, I would say, um, do you believe that that piece of plastic is more valuable than your brother? Sometimes they would hesitate. Um, but they would get the point and then we would just make the point like, so if you don't believe that that piece of plastic is more valuable than your brother, why are you acting as though it is? And in those moments, when you're giving these simple lessons to your kids, it comes back on yourself so readily, right? If I know that things produce things in this world, whatever possessions, money, cars, houses, jobs, whatever it is, if I know that those are things that are not more valuable than human beings, then why do I treat them as more valuable? Because when, I'm, when I do, that's idolatry. That's putting something in the place of God. That's saying that this thing is more important than God himself. And so that's why that's in the list here. Greed, which is idolatry. Let's look at a few others. Uh, there's this word anger that's in here. And it's this idea where he's talking about the, 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 the whole list of things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, all these kinds of things have to do with destructive behavior of one human being towards another. There's this idea of this like this this smoldering or seething hatred, this this rage which breaks out in angry actions or in angry words. And malice here gets at the idea it, it can simply mean evil, but but really what it gets at is 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 an evil impulse that leads you to have the intention of causing hurt to another. Every one of these verses has to do with how you treat, how I treat another human being. Slander, which is putting malice into practice, right? That's, that's, that's actually trying to do harm to somebody else and their reputation with your words. Related to this idea elsewhere in scripture is, is the idea of blasphemy or speaking in a way that dishonors God himself. Well, well, this malice, this slander is speaking in a way that dishonors a human being that is made in God's image. Now, in filthy language here, it's not just talking about cuss words or dirty words. It's talking about words that are abusive in their intent, words that are that are abusive in their intent. And so when they are spoken, they have a destructive impact, not only on the person that's spoken to them or they're spoken to, but they also have an impact on the person that's speaking them. because human beings destroy each other when we treat each other as less than image bearers of God. And, and, and these are things we can't always prevent from popping into our heads. 
But when we see them, we should think about them as a thief, as a robber in the night. We are supposed to use our words to love and to build up others. We are supposed to use our words to redeem and to restore and to heal. And sometimes you need to speak sharp words of truth to to heal and to bring together. But man, so often uh, when someone's saying they're justified because they're just speaking the truth, um, the truth can't be just speaking the truth in the biblical sense anyway, in the Jesus sense anyway, unless it is accompanied by love. Because again, it's what your intent of your words is towards another human being. So I can speak truthful words to somebody else, but if my intent on my truthful words is to do harm or to do damage to them, then that's still destructive. It's still not okay. My, my, my words have to bring restoration and healing. And again, it doesn't mean you can't speak hard words to other people, but we have to go back and ask ourselves a question. Why am I speaking these words? And what do I intend to do with these words towards somebody else? Sexual immorality in this list, too. It's, it's talking about using the gift of sex that God's given us in a way that's destructive to others or destructive to ourselves. You know, using them in a selfish way, really another form of idolatry. Same thing with impurity and lust and evil desires. All these things say that I get to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, and damn the consequences. I can do whatever I want living in a way that's, that's, that is destructively self-centered. These are all things in this list that destroy humanity. These are things in this list, and we're talking about them historically here in a minute, which have been massively destructive. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desire, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language, all these things are designed to destroy. Now think about this list and put it in the context of American history. Put it in the context, I'll come back to this in a minute, put it into the context of slavery in America. Put it into the context of chattel slavery that taught that, that a, a, an African person was less, not just less than a full image bearer of God, but, but worthy of being treated like, like, a, like an animal, like a pet, like a dog. Radical dehumanization, radically destructive, radically evil. Everything in slavery, think about this list, sexual immorality. Uh, slaves were forced to live outside of the confines of marriage and often were raped repeatedly through immorality, lust, and evil desire. It, the whole slave industry was undergirded by greed. It was all kept in place by anger and wrath and malice and slander. You could not read Colossians 3 and not see all the connections to the history of, of slavery in America. And yet we had people proclaiming to be Christians uh, some of them slave owners themselves. And we had we had institutions in our country like like established churches that would even speak up in defense of slavery and act as though somehow it, it is it is compatible with scripture and it's not. And so as we look at that, we lament that that is part of the history and the legacy, not just of America, but even of the church. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, the other things that are in this list, that the Apostle Paul talks about in Christ. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all, pointing us again back to that redeemed nature, that, that every human being was created to be an image bearer of God, entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. And that, that, that many human beings throughout history have been robbed of that because of sin and brokenness. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to point you back to, to you have no cause for division. Now, barbarians here is, is derogatory language 
uh, for anyone that doesn't speak the Greek language. Anyone that doesn't speak your language, you can deride. It's thought actually to have come from mocking people whose languages you don't understand by bar, 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 which became barbarian. It's really, it's an arrogant and self-important way of referring to your own inherent superiority and the other's inherent inferiority simply because you speak a different language. Now, I've seen that happen in my upbringing in my country, where people are mocked because they don't speak English fluently, when it's often missed by the fact that they speak two, three, four, even five different languages. You know, imagine that, right? Someone can't speak your language fluently, um, and and you look at that as a reason to treat them as a less than a full image bearer of God, good night. There's no logical explanation for that other than just inhumanity of man towards man. It's malice. It's evil. It's wrong. It cannot happen. Now, the Scythians here were, were a little known people in the north of Asia. And so this is oftentimes, too, where certain uh, ethnic groups can be derided or stereotyped or dismissed because of certain whatever. And so the Apostle Paul picks one of the ethnic groups in the in that world known to them that would have been the most easily to derive, would have been the butt of everyone's jokes, would have been like the, the people that no one even hesitated or paused to make fun of or to dismiss. And the Apostle Paul says, no, you cannot do that. And, and they were looked at by some as, as worse than even the barbarians and slightly better than, than wild savages. Now, N.T. Wright in his commentary on Colossians says this, the ancient world, just like the modern, was an elaborate network of prejudice, suspicion, and arrogance, so ingrained as to be thought natural and normal. We can look at the ancient world and see these things, and they help us learn about our own era, because just like them, we are, man, so much the same. That There's such an elaborate network of prejudice and suspicion and arrogance that's become so ingrained that we think of it as almost natural and normal. And by we, I mean the collective we in America or in the Western world. We think of division as a natural state of affairs for humanity. That is grieving to God. We should think of division as a primary evidence of the brokenness of humanity and of everyone's desperate need to find healing, faith, hope, and forgiveness in by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we should do. Now, again, it's not to say that the differences in gender and background and nationality and language and social standing and so on and so forth are irrelevant, but it means that we view all of humanity through the, the issue of love and honor and respect. We flip it. So we look at someone different than us as someone that has something to teach us about God, to teach us about humanity, to teach us something that we don't know. If you have a different experience than I do in this world, based on your background, based on your history, based on whatever... I have a lot to learn from you. We have a lot to learn from each other. And so we have the opportunity to sit down and get a bigger and bigger view of God. The illustration I've used in the past before is, is one of a mosaic. If you get up really close on a mosaic, they're just a bunch of small pieces of, of different colored broken stone. But as you step back on a mosaic, they form a beautiful and intricate uh, image that, that is so striking that is made up of all these tiny different images, these different bits and I think in so many ways, that's how God wants us to understand humanity. The body of Christ is every tribe, tongue, and nation. In the body of Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free. Now, again, I said this, and I want to ingrain it into you. There is no greater ethnic distinction or division in the ancient world than Jew and Gentile. 
or Jew and Greek. And there was no greater uh, financial or socioeconomic distinction in the ancient world than slave and free. And, and yet in Christ, we recognize that if we are to get a full picture of who Jesus is, then socioeconomic and ethnic barriers in between us that throw up walls of hostility inhibit, diminish our ability to have a vision of Jesus of himself. It's a theological deficiency if we don't know and relate with people around the world and around our own country that come from different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds. We have a slim view of who Jesus is. If Jesus is a giant mosaic and I am cutting myself off to little pieces of stone that only look like me, I can't see the whole picture. And so there is a strategic reason. There is a a deep need that every human being has to know and to learn from others because that's how God made us to know and to learn and to see the inherent love and honor and respect and dignity that all these individuals bring to the table. And that is how we see Christ in all and Christ as all. And so racial and socioeconomic and political identities that are built on tribalism and opposition to the other break us. It's an illustration I've shared in the past before, but this is how natural we consider division to be or what I would call a unity of opposition to the other. Now, God created us for a unity of common humanity that's broken because of sin, but that's being restored in Jesus, where we can again have a unity of common humanity in Christ. But the only thing we see in our literature and the only thing we see in our movies is a unity of opposition to the other. The only time we see humanity coming together is to oppose something. And I've joked about this before in sermons, but um, think about the movies. When is the only time you see all of humanity uniting as one to be human beings together? It's alien invasion, right? There has to be some alien force coming down to earth that we can unify um, to to be in opposition against. It's so natural for us to think that unity is built on opposition to the other, where unity is built on commonality. Unity from a biblical perspective is Genesis 1.27. So God created man, God created humans in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created us in his image. That is what fundamentally unites us. And the differences of experience we have are an opportunity um, through different socioeconomic and ethnic experiences and whatever other experiences you have. It's a different, it's an opportunity for us to get a different and fuller perspective on who God is. So depending on on when you, uh, you or your family got to America and who your ancestors were, you have a different legacy um, and, and a different experience. And we need to unpack that Because with our legacies and with our experiences come different degrees of understanding what our experience in America has been like has been informed by those that have come before us. And so what do I mean by that? We've talked about before, I've talked about and preached about before with Curtis Allen, this idea, King Josiah comes in and he recognizes after reading the law, reading the book of the law, that he has inherited sinful ways of doing things, broken and awful ways of doing things, primarily characterized in his world by idolatry, turning to other things except for God, and oppression of the most vulnerable in their midst, which in their time were foreigners or immigrants, uh, the poor, um, orphans, and widows. And people were oppressing those that were vulnerable, and they weren't worshiping the one true God. And so King Josiah comes to grieve this. It's, it's a similar idea to what First Peter says, where we've all inherited empty ways from our ancestors. 
broken and sinful ways of doing things, ways of doing things that could be classified or characterized by the list of things we saw in Colossians 3. And so what the apostle or what uh, what King Josiah does is he leads his nation through a repentance process. Now, it's not a repentance process necessarily a personal culpability. It's not. There's a difference here where if I offend you personally, I must come and ask your forgiveness and make restitution. That's personal culpability. Now, there's there's a different kind of repentance we see in Scripture, which says, I see this in, this empty and sinful and broken way of doing things in the past, in my nation, among my tribe, among my whatever. And I want to turn away from that and back to God. And so King Josiah leads them through a turning away and uh, from and then a renewing of covenant with God himself. God, we want to do things your way and we want to turn away from these things in the past. And so we need to spend some time understanding what are some sinful ways we've inherited in our country. Now, this is not about feeling bad or about personal culpability. And, and, and if you can't repent of things in terms of personal culpability that you didn't do. But you can repent in terms of turning away from empty or broken things by ways of calling them out. And so there's a history in our country, and especially even among those that were you know, proclaiming to be followers of Jesus, um, that led people to view primarily those that weren't privileged white landowners as less than fully human. And so first off, if you were poor, you could be disregarded or discarded. Um, if you were non-white, mainly at that point in time, Native American or of African descent, you were dismissed as less than a full image bearer of God. You were dehumanized in ways that were atrocious throughout our history. You have you know, major theologians that are revered by many guys like Jonathan Edwards and others and some of our founding fathers that taught that, that non-whites were less than full image bearers of God and therefore you weren't required to treat them as such. You could disregard them. You could oppress them. You could enslave them. You could abuse them. These are people that would look, read the word. They would read about Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And they, like the wealthy young ruler, would say, they're not really my neighbor. But what would Jesus say? Anyone that's vulnerable, anyone that's in need is your neighbor. And so we've talked about this in in the past. I've talked about this in the past. I don't mean like a collective we. Um, There are many things about our nation's history that we need to unveil. We need to just get out on the table and talk about and lament. Lament divisive and destructive ways that have been, things that have been, been, been done by our government, things that have been done by people in the name of Jesus, things that have been done um, by people proclaiming to be part of the church. And we need to lament them and repent of them in a King Josiah kind of way to say, God, help me to turn away from, to fully understand and to reject all those empty and broken ways and to turn back towards you. There are things that happen in our own city. In this state, um, there were things called uh, anti-Cooley laws. Now, Cooley, at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, was like unto the N-word for Chinese people. It was an ignorant, abusive, horrific terms. There were anti-Cooley laws put into our nations or our state's books. Like you can go and look at the regulations and it wasn't even put in as an anti-Chinese law. It was put in as an anti-Cooley law. It was put in with that derogatory term in there. And it limited the the financial and personal freedoms of Chinese people uh, in, and put them in ghettos in the cities like San Francisco and, and led to all kinds of abuse um, and, and a few massacres, horrific things. Uh, we all know about Japanese internment and what happened there. We know about 
discriminatory laws and practices in our own city that forced out the working class and poor black populations that gutted um, things like, uh, you know, the, the Fillmore and, and brought in really discriminatory processes. We need to look at those and say, our city has had broken and horrific things about its past. And we need to bring that out and, and lay it down. You can't just push in and say, oh, well, it's a progressive city now that loves everyone. Bullcrap. It's a city that has a ton of injustice and it's never been honestly dealt with. And we as followers of Jesus, because our identity is secure in Christ, man, we can bring that out and we can call it out. We are seeing a, a whole rise of this recently with all the, the increase of attacks on the Asian American community in our city and throughout the Bay Area and around our country. As a follower of Jesus, as someone that looks at the words of Colossians 3, uh, 5 to 11 seriously, you can say those are destructive things to humanity and we can stand up and call them out. We should be speaking against them and working for healing and redemption and wholeness and working to protect the Asian American community. Christ Church is majority Asian American. The, 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 we, we need to have a voice to say this is wrong and needs to be taken action up against immediately. But part of it, I want to tell you this, is because of our city's unwillingness to unveil its own racist and discriminatory history, its own horrific way of doing things. Our city likes to pretend that we're just progressive and love everyone. Well, again, that's bull. It's not been the history and it's not been the history up until recent history. And we need to call it out so that we can do this King Josiah framework thing and turn away from that broken way of doing things and turn towards a better way. And we can only do that in Christ because Christ is reconciling us to himself and reconciling the world to himself. But we're called to do it in Christ. There are all these different perspectives in our history that are horrific. Uh, we, I did a recording recently with a friend, uh, Corey Leake, who's uh, done, done a lot of really great work uh, on, in this area. Uh, and Corey was talking about recently in a podcast he did, that think about this image for a moment, that, that a black man was put on a ship in West Africa. Um, say in the 16 or 1700s. And when the man was put on that ship, he was, he was a human being. He might've been a husband, a father, a brother, an uncle, a tradesman, all these things about his identity that made him who he was. And when he was put on that ship, he was transformed by racist and horrific and oppressive policies into personal private property that was less than human, robbed of rights, robbed of humanity, robbed of dignity. And that was done for hundreds of years in our nation's history. And we need to be able to call that out and lay that out and lament it. We need to be able to lament what was done to the Native Americans in our country. We need to be able to lament all the injustice. And this is, this is not about, um, about white fragility or white guilt or any of those kinds of things. Um, there are some good and some truth in those concepts. But what this is about is a deeper lens on what humanity is. If every human being is an image bearer of God, entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love, uh, and the structures in my society currently or the structures in my society historically have denied those things, then the, they, they have battled against God's intent for humanity. And it's my responsibility to call that out, to lament it, and then to turn away from it. Because it's only by lamenting and facing the full reality of what it is that I can decide who God is, who I am, and what God's called me to do. So secondly, transformed through lament. We have these bookends in scripture of Genesis 1 and the end of the book of Revelations. And in the beginning, we see the story of how humanity was created to live with God and to live for God in complete harmony. 
And in the end, we see that image restored where humanity, every tribe, tongue and nation is living with God and for God once again where there's this vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, a vast multitude which no one could number. And they're standing before the throne and worshiping Jesus together. This redemption image, this picture of God bringing things back, that is God's intent for humanity. And we daily pray now, hopefully, we pray to the Lord in in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are working to make earth like heaven, not with utopian or, or, or dystopian ideals that, that are going to come to naught. We're doing it in the face of reality. That's why lament is so, so important. We have to lament and see it. So we see the full brokenness of humanity. And then we have to work for healing and, and ask God to show us how he's called us to come forward and to change things. So what does it look like to work for healing? Well, Solomon Andrea, a Cote d'Ivoire scholar, says this about Colossians 3. As they work to rid themselves of their earthly nature, the Colossians will recover the image of the creator in themselves as it was when humans were first created. That image was stained and distorted by sin, but now is being restored in Christ. That image is being restored in Christ. That image of your creator, if you're a follower of Jesus, is being restored and it's being renewed. The person in whom this image is restored is capable of overcoming the racial, religious, and social barriers that separate Greek from Jew, circumcised from uncircumcised, foreigner from locals, and slave from free. Paul's contemporaries would have considered the Scythians as culturally backward natives, but in Christ, they are all equally members of the Christian community. And so what we do in this passage, what we do as as a Solomon's reminding us here is we allow ourselves to be transformed. We we allow ourselves to be transformed and to be restored in Christ. And we recognize that all of humanity can only be restored in Christ. But when we get this vision of what humanity is supposed to be, then we ask God what he's calling us to do to make a difference. And we don't let ourselves be limited by what we think the cultural obstacles are. We don't say that could never work. I'm not going to do it. We say, no, if God's calling me to work, to restore and to renew all humanity, then what barrier can I let stand in the way? And the answer is there is no barrier. There's a beautiful story uh, that actually I saw repeated again this week. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute. Back all the way in 1220, uh, Francis of Assisi, who our city's named after, um, he, in the midst of the Fifth Crusade, there's this horrible battle being done with religious overtones uh, between those claiming the name of Christ and those uh, you know, claiming Islam and they're, they're fighting in Egypt and it's gotten ugly. And over the course of, of 120 years or so of battles, tens of thousands of people have died on both sides. Somehow have died in the name of who knows what, I won't go into the details of it now, but in the midst of that, in the middle of that, um, Francis of Assisi looks to the scriptures, looks as his call to be a peacemaker and says, how can I not, but go and try to talk to Malika Kamil, the sultan in Egypt, the commander of the Muslim armies. He says, I want to go to him. I want to appeal to him. I want to share the love of Jesus with him. And and even if he won't accept it, I want to find a way to make peace and to grow and to learn from each other. This is 1220. This is in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. And this is what Francis of Assisi is trying to do. And so he goes there with one friend and he, he crosses the battle lines. 
um, gets captured initially, gets beaten, tells them of his desire. Everyone thinks he's nuts, thinks he's crazy, but he's finally brought before the Sultan. And he's there for, they think about three weeks as the guest of the Sultan. And over the course of the three weeks, they're building a friendship from different, it's difficult to get at their true account of what's happened because there's different different ways that it's written. But in essence, both of them spend the first couple of days sharing about their own faiths and, and, and desiring for the other to come and convert for obvious reasons. Um, and as Fra- Francis is sharing about the love of Jesus, he shares about the call to be a peacemaker and the desire for peace. And both men came away from that meeting proclaiming to have been transformed forever um, in terms of what they thought was possible um, in humanity. And there's many more stories like that that I can share. But what I wanted to share that story was as the backdrop, because even this week, Pope Francis uh, went over uh, into Iraq and visited um, the head of the Shia faith. So the, the head of all the Shia religions in the world, he went over and visited. And I had the name written down here and I just I just misplaced it. And they spent an hour together talking about how to find peace and dialogue in between their peoples. Now, ultimately, we are working in this world for everyone to come to know the, uh, the, the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. But a fruit of us working for that is seeking peace with others, is sitting down and having these dialogues. And if we are to be marked by loving the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and loving our neighbors ourselves, we have no choice but to work for peace, especially with those that are most vulnerable and especially with those that are maybe even most in opposition with you. Because God enables us to see all of humanity as image bearers, all of humanity as broken image bearers that need Jesus. And if there is no other for us, if there is no one we can dehumanize or oppose, then there are only those we can love and serve and introduce to the love of Jesus. Dallas Willard in a book called Transforming the Mind gets more of this Colossians passage. He says this, another illustration of the great difference in outlook is found in Paul's letter to the Colossians. There he contrasted the way of of earth or flesh and the way of the new person. The human way, the broken human way, the human way is one of anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language, and lying. Think for a moment about how true this is to human life. But now Paul says, Lie no more, since you have stripped off the old self and its characteristic behavior and put on the new self, which sees things as they really are in God's view. In that view, the usual human distinctions between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free person, and so on, do not matter in how we relate to people because Christ is or can be in all alike. Our perspective is transformed. We're able to see other human beings and we're able to push past simplistic moralities that make it easy for us to draw up sides and to decide who we're going to hate or not going to hate. And they help us push through to understanding if I believe that God is who he says he is and I believe that Jesus did and is doing what he says he's doing, tearing down every wall of hostility. If I believe that Jesus has made me into a minister of reconciliation and into a peacemaker, and how can I do anything else other than extend his mission by fighting for those same things? As a, we, you know, there's, there's one beautiful book on the priesthood of all believers where a West African scholar describes us as um, all being part of a priestly family with Christ as first in our order. The idea is that Christ inaugurated a priestly family. What do priests do? Priests intercede to bring people together to God with, to God, with God. They bring peace. And we are a priesthood of all believers. We are ministers of reconciliation. 
We have the ability to come alongside others and empathize, come alongside others and not forget who we are in Christ. And, and we have the ability to go before God and say, help us to be who Jesus asked us to be. Help us to be not primarily defined by politics or party, but by the love of the vulnerable, by the love of the widow and the orphan. Help us to serve. And so my goal in all of this is kind of a two-part project that I want you to do this week. Um, First part is to lament division, to lay out from your own personal story and what you know of the history of the world and the history of, of our country. And I want you to lay it out in all of its ugliness. And I want you to say, that's not normal. That grieves God. God helped that to grieve me. And let's spend some time grieving in it and seeing the reality of the ugliness of it. And once we plumb the depths of it and see the ugliness of it, let's ask ourselves a question. Who do I believe God is in the midst of all of this? Do I believe that God is light breaking into darkness? Do I believe that God, through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, is love and forgiveness breaking in to hate and separation and division? And we have to answer from scripture that that is indeed who he is. He is light and love breaking into hate and darkness. God is working against this kind of ugly division that's in society. God is unveiling it. Even when he talks about dividing uh, between the bone and the marrow, it's about laying, laying forth the brokenness and the ugliness and the reality of what's actually there in humanity so that we can pursue hope in Jesus Christ. That is what we're called to do. So I want us to do that lament project. And then I want us to ask who God is. And then if that's who God is, I want us to ask this question. Who am I in the midst of this all? Do I believe that God has redeemed me and transformed me? And if he hasn't, if you don't know if he has, man, pray. God will do it today. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask God to make you part of his family. And it's as simple as that. Then he begins that work of transformation. He gives you the power of the Holy Spirit. And he brings you into his family to begin being part of his work. And if you're in his family, you're part of his work. What's your identity? Who are you called to be? If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are a minister of reconciliation. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are a peacemaker. If you're united to Christ, then you are called alongside of him to recognize that he's torn down every wall of hostility and that our work is to tear down walls of hostility. We can and we must Do the work that God's called us to do, no matter how hard it is. So I don't care who it is that you think is is you you can't build a bridge to. You can't. But supernaturally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God can and God will. And I want to encourage you to be part of the work of God in doing this work, to lament division, to be transformed by division. Because if we're going to have lasting hope in our world, it's going to require genuine and deep lament. But once we go through that lament process... God transforms us, God renews us, God redeems us, and God enables us to, in an in a encouraging way, step into the work he has for us. And next week, we're going to talk about the work that God has for each and every one of us and, and what he's calling us to do, I believe, coming out of this pandemic in San Francisco and beyond. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come before you knowing that you are a loving Father, knowing that we are forgiven and loved in Christ, and knowing that we are empowered in the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help us to love you and to love others. I pray that you would help us to take seriously the charge to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Teach us to see that our our neighbors are anyone vulnerable and anyone that's in need. Help us to, like the Apostle Paul encourages us in Colossians 3, 5 to 11, 
to put to death all these things, to not simply go back to bed, but to put them to death, knowing that they are destructive to us and destructive to humanity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.